0: Well, if you have your book with you, um, and as I said, even if you don't, we left off on page 10 of the first chapter. I guess some some of it depends on what version of the book that you have. We're using the original 1946 version of the autobiography, Um, but essentially we left it at the stage where Yogananda was first in the beginning aching a little bit or feeling sorry that he didn't get the opportunity to see Lahiri Mahashaya in the physical form, only to realize that Lahiri Mahashaya was ever present to him at the point between the eyebrows and he said from that moment on, I pined no more, I felt sorry no longer. And uh, that certainly echoes a lot of our own sentiments with Yogananda, some of you with Swami Kriyananda. So continuing now, um, there's just this little section right below it where Yogananda essentially is um, so ill Uh, that he almost dies. In fact, he's had this almost dying once or twice throughout the book. And of course, he receives this miraculous healing from Lahiri Mahasaya's photograph. And we were talking about how that photograph is something very special. Um, In the next page, it talks about how that photograph was taken. And I'd like to just read a little bit from the book for that. It Said here, a certain student an expert photographer Gangadhar Babu (laughs) boasted that the fugitive figure would not escape him. Now he's saying this because in the past when people tried to take photographs of Lahiri Mahashaya, they were unable to do so. They take the photograph but then when they would develop it, there would be nothing where Lahiri Mahashaya should have been. So just like air, you could see behind what was but not him. So, he's boasting that he's not going to let that happen. The next morning, as the guru sat in lotus posture on a wooden bench with a screen behind him, Gangadhar Babu arrived with his equipment. Taking every precaution for success, he greedily exposed 12 plates. Now, of course, we're talking about the camera that, you know, (laughs) it took a lot of work to set up and you had to put these plates on which the negative photograph would, um, kind of the impression would come. On each one, he soon found the imprint of the wooden bench and screen, but once again, the master's form was missing. With tears and shattered pride, Gangadhar Babu sought out his guru. And finally, Lehri Mahashaya says to him, I am spirit. Can your camera reflect the omnipresent invisible? Now, of course, the story itself is very sweet and it just shows Lehri Mahashaya's playful nature to a certain degree, but also a little bit of his, how he taught his students, not so much by just kind of saying, Gita mein likha hai, Mahabharat mein hua tha, very much through experience, very much through showing them what and what he could or could not do as spirit. But this is the theme of the autobiography as well. It's always spirit versus the world, which is the stronger, which has more of the influence. And of course, we're constantly seeing the world winning in our lives. And that's only because our ability to commune with spirit, our ability to really feel spirit is not as strong. And that's the part we need to be strengthening. I mean, I can imagine you know, us with our latest iPhones and just saying, oh, do you know, and this has this feature and that and it has a wide angle and now it can do a portrait and, you know, Lahiri Masha is saying, okay, show me how it works and, you know, us clicking the photo and there he is in there as well. And so, we've got this fascination with technology and this pho- this photographer, he had the best equipment back then, got the fascination with technology, with the world, but we forget the consciousness that enlivens everything. I remember Swami Kriyananda loved to have the latest technology all the time. He said it helped him just see how man's consciousness was evolving, starting well in the, with the typewriter when he first started writing his books to, of course, the latest MacBook Pros. And he watched how man naturally started opening himself to receive more and see that the world could do far more. But the people who make these technologies, they're the ones who are opening themselves to feel. But it seems to me at least, those of us who are using the technology, some of technology is also kind of getting us entrapped and enslaved in a certain lifestyle that is not beneficial. And what we are seeing now, to a certain degree, is this. World versus consciousness. You know, nature versus all the technology we have, all that we are able to do. And yet, here we are, all of us trapped in our homes, (laughs) just because nature has decided to wreak a little havoc. And that's it. That's all it takes. And nature, of course, is receiving her orders from spirit. So today, now, in this moment going forward, let's look at all that we have and see how does it reflect spirit? How does it reflect man's dawning awareness and consciousness? And use even that which we have been given with that understanding and I feel we'll be able to utilize technology more powerfully if we do that.
1: So this is um, something that we have skipped. I didn't know Shurja was going to go a little farther. But in that episode where when Lahiri Mahashaya appears to Yogananda and heals him, there is a sentence here that really struck me. And his mother tells to him, even knowing, seeing how weak Yogananda is, who, I mean, he can't. I mean, he can't move. He's just so, so weak. And she says to Yogananda, Bow to him mentally. She knew I was too feeble even to lift my hands in salutation. And then she says, If you really show your devotion and inwardly kneel before him, Your life will be spared. I thought this is such a powerful message for each one of us. It has two aspects here. The word that Yogananda uses here is if you really show your devotion, means if we sincerely, humbly, if we with all our heart, all our strength, all our love, We really tell the universe, the divine, or to our Guru how much we appreciate their presence in our lives, how much we acknowledge their power and their guidance in our lives. And we show freely, which means sincerely, how much his help is really saving our lives. Then she says, your life will be spared. In this case, is it was Yogananda's life. But for many of us, in our daily lives, we keep facing so many little obstacles and troubles and doubts and fears. And I don't think we use the power of devotion enough. And we don't know really how to approach and how to ask for our Guru or the Divine's help. They are there waiting for us to spare us from our troubles, our delusions, maya. The problem is not in them or not being able to listen in to their guidance. The problem is in us. Do we really call out to them with that sincerity, with that devotion? And then she says, inwardly kneel before him sometimes many of us or many people in the spiritual path and Swami Kriyananda pointed out many times we like to make such a such a show just to show the world how devoted how devotionally we are and we think the more we express outwardly that devotion with those words loudly so everyone can see can see us the more we'll draw those blessings i mean i think this is so powerful if you inwardly is something that no one needs to see no one needs to know what's happening and and i think this is important for us make it yes impersonal your relationship with god with your guru with the divine but but make it sacred make it real make it sincere and humble and make it something that is so sacred and personal that in that intimacy you are really attracting, you know, the blessings to spare us from, right now, so many things that we need to overcome and face.
0: Narayani's talking reminded me of an episode from the Mahabharata. I'm always having trouble with this guy. Where, uh, you know, Draupadi is going through that moment where the Kauravas are disrobing her. And of course, we know of the the image of Krishna then just sending uh, kind of meter after meter of sari so that it's infinite and unlimited, and no matter how many times they pull at it, there just more of more sari keeps coming. But uh, later on, there's this little episode where Draupadi goes to Krishna when she meets him later and says, You know, where were you? Because uh, While they were disrobing me, my pallu, I guess what it's called, you know, it kind of slipped off my shoulder before you came and uh, did, you know, before you came and shared with me your infinite blessing. And Krishna said, that's because until that point, you were still feeling that you with your own strength could stop this and you hadn't fully surrendered to me completely. And this is, I guess, what Master is also saying, Yogananda is saying. Just that complete surrender and then immediately, because as long as there's a part of us that's still there, you know, the infinite cannot come in, in the force with which we need them at those times. And so that's what Krishna's message was as well. As long as you felt that, you know, I'm calling out to you, but I'm not really opening myself to you. As long as there's a part of me that says, I can still somehow make this work, rather than saying, well, come do what you need to do. So, very sweet. Thank you, Narayani, for that. Mm-hmm. So, we're continuing on now and we're um, at this little, f- cute little episode between Yogananda and his sister. Um, and it goes, this conversation goes, so, his sister says, Why do you use medicine on a healthy arm? And so, you can, you can imagine Yogananda's rubbing ointment on his arm where he doesn't need to because his sister has a boil and she was rubbing ointment on that boil. And Yogananda says, well, sis, I love the casuality of it. Well, sis, I feel I'm going to have a boil tomorrow. I am testing your ointment on the spot where the boil with, will appear. You little liar, she said. Sis, don't call me a liar until you see what happens in the morning. <laughs> Indignation filled me, Yogananda says. Uma was unimpressed and thrice repeated her taunt. Then Yogananda, a little bit upset. By the power of will in me, I say that tomorrow I shall have a fairly large boil in this exact place on my arm. And your boil shall swell to twice its present size. Now, of course, its <laughs> we all know this is exactly what happens. And uh, his sister Uma rushes to her mom and tells on Yogananda... And, the mother, like any mother, <laughs> comes and reprimands him and scolds him. Mukunda has become a necromancer, his wife, his sister says. A necromancer is a charlatan, a wizard, someone who uses sorcery. And of course, Yogananda then says that his mother counseled him to remember that his power of words, his words had great power to either do harm or to help. And this is what he then says. Where is it? Okay. I understood later that the explosive vibratory power of speech could wisely be directed to free one's life from difficulties, and it can also be used to harm and hurt. So this is where we talk about, especially in the Yamas, the Yama of Non-Lying. Which is not particularly that we don't lie about what we're doing, we don't, I mean, that's just, you can say, the most physical outward reality. But it is that we use our words very wisely. That we don't say anything that we don't mean, either to fulfill, that we know isn't true outwardly, or that if we've said it, we have to put our energy behind it, because our words are very powerful. And of course, in this book, you're seeing Yogananda saying something, it manifesting the very next day. You and I may not be able to manifest a boil on our arms, but the truth is, we're manifesting everything in our lives. And they're all uh, expression of those vibrations we are putting out. And words are, you can say, a condensed form of that vibration. And they have a lot of power because sound has power. Sound represents the power of Aum. And so if a thought is put into sound. That means that thought has been, you can say, infused with OM, thereby empowering it. And now it's been put out into the universe. And now as long as that vibration exists in the universe, sooner or later that vibration has to fulfill itself. So imagine everything that we've said I'm unhappy, I'm tired, I hate this person, and of course all the good stuff. I love this, I love that, I love ice cream, (laughs) you know, I'm so happy today. Everything we've ever said and expressed, all of it is out there in the universe, now having to manifest itself. It may not happen tomorrow the way it happened with Yogananda, but it's going to happen. And so if I have to think about the fact that my words are going to happen, I'm a little scared now. (laughs) I'm a little worried. Geez, I've said a lot of things. And I've said a lot of things that I wish I didn't say. I've said a lot of things that I know I don't want to happen. I've said a lot of things that are binding me completely. My happiness for this, my need for that, my love for this. And uh, well, now I'm just going to have to live through it. So that's the past. Now what am I going to do, like Yogananda? His reprimand from His Mother. This is Divine Mother reprimanding us and saying, well, be careful. Everything you say has power and everything you say will either bind you or free you. And so let's take our words very seriously now. What is it that we want to say? And what is it that we want to put into the universe? Because the power of OM, with your thought injected into the universe will have to manifest. Be careful. <laughs>
1: And simply add to what Shurjo just explained, that brings us also to the power of prayer. If the powers are so powerful, and Yogananda here says, spoken with deep concentration. And I think this is a key word for all of us. And at the beginning of this paragraph, he writes, those simple and apparently harmless phrases and that that's what's happening with many of us when we communicate when we speak with those around us those words that we use casually those apparent words that we think are harmless they indeed uh, create consequences and it's not just what we say but how we say it and the more aware we are of our words and what we really try to communicate the more we'll be working really with our karma and with our tendencies the words i think have really the power to mitigate karma and to help other people to to bring them to their next step so i think this is important to mostly i wanted to bring out the concept of what we say or how we pray or when we ask for guidance the key word is with deep concentration many of us ask or pray absent-minded absent-mindedly and that's the reason why our prayers are heard (laughs) Our prayers are always heard, but not responded as quickly as we want, because we don't have the enough, enough concentration to, to draw immediately the answer to it. Okay, and only, of course, to bring out that Yogananda was such a, you know, 11 or 12 years old, he was here. I mean, he had already such a power i mean everything he said at the age of seven eight nine ten already materialized it i mean imagine i mean we all know when he became what he became and who he became i mean it was really really amazing so anyway something for us to think about it this week about how we speak and the power of our words
0: i don't have anything further in in this chapter, before yeah. we move on to the next, so why don't you... I actually
1: have at the end of it, uh, Yogananda's sister, uh, Yogananda's sister, asked him, "Why are you so quiet?" And Yogananda replies, "I'm just thinking how wonderful it is that Divine Mother gives me whatever I ask. I find that remarkable, because." The power of conviction that Divine Mother is just listening to me and she's just going to give me whatever I want. I mean, that knowledge and that awareness that Divine Mother got whatever I'm going to ask for, I mean, it's the conviction that he had. I think that's something we should also... uh, Keep in develop. mind, develop exactly when when we approach to anything. I mean, the knowing, the conviction that whatever we we want or whatever we need is going to come to us. So anyway, I thought that was like, mm, that's something I need to <laughs> work on myself.
0: I feel though, somehow, Narayani and I are a little blessed that that's one aspect that I think more and more feels very natural. It's easy because if she doesn't give it to us, that means we just don't need it. And so it's easy to work with that. If she doesn't give you what you don't need, then everything that she's giving you is what you need. Then you can just say, Divine Mother just gives me everything I need all the time. Whether it's a scolding or whether it's a a dessert. Okay, let's move on to the second chapter. And... uh, It's nice. We're in the period of the Navratras and this chapter focuses a lot on Yogananda's mother. Uh, So again, we're just, you know, how these things come together. We're just still tuning into a lot of this motherly, divine mother energy. But this is a little bit of a sad chapter in certain ways. This is my mother's death and the mystic amulet. This is what the second chapter is. So here Yogananda faces his... You know, the first big test of his life, Um, we'll see how close his relationship to his mother was, how attached in a certain way he was to his mother, because she was the only one in in his family who completely understood him and resonated with his heart's yearning for God. Even though his father was a very astute yogi, yet his father had certain involvement in the material world that he could not set aside and he could not fully, you can say, in his own mind, allow that part to to govern some of the decisions that he made. So let's see what happens with his mother and how that relates to us because we've all lost somebody and chances are we will lose somebody at some point or the other whom we love deeply. So this is the time where Yogananda's mother is setting up his eldest brother Ananta's marriage. The wedding is about to happen. Yogananda says, like any mother, she's just so excited to see her firstborn be married. And Yogananda is 11 years old at this time. Now, the wedding's preparations are happening in Calcutta, whereas Yogananda and his father, just the two of them from the entire family, remember they were a family of eight kids and husband and wife, so only Yogananda's father and he are in Bareilly where his father works. Everyone else is in Calcutta, so let's see what happens. It was in Bareilly on a midnight as I slept beside father. I was awakened by a peculiar flutter of the mosquito netting. The flimsy flimsy curtains parted and I saw the beloved form of my mother. Awaken your father, her voice was only a whisper. Take the first train, available train, at four o'clock this morning. Rush to Calcutta if you would see me. The wreath like figure vanished. Father, father, mother is dying. The terror in my tone aroused him instantly. I sobbed out the fatal tidings. The words Yogananda uses are <laughs> just so poetic, so beautiful. Some of it may go a little bit over our head, but it conveys the message like no other. Never mind your hallucinations, father gave his characteristic negation to a new situation. I love these words. Characteristic negation to a new situation. I can so relate to Yogananda's father. I I have this like, if it's something new and i am not particularly done it before, I'd be like, you know, let it, I think we should just let it be the way it is. Why fix it if it isn't broken? And this is Yogananda's, father's particular way that he's already talked about before, that to any new situation, to anything that's outside his point of view, there was a characteristic negation. Your mother is in excellent health. If we get any bad news, we shall leave tomorrow. So, of course, you've got this setting here. Yogananda's mother has communicated with him. Throughout the book we see with Yogananda, people just appearing, him having all these visions, And, uh, of course, that makes us feel a little separated from him in some ways. It makes us feel in awe of, oh, wow, what a great yogi he was. But the truth is, we are being communicated with all the time. It is just our inability to actually see those communications and in many ways to perceive them. Only because we've got so much else going on. I mean, think of like a radio, right? And this is something Yogananda used often. Now we're running out of radios. So the kids in the future may not even relate to this example, but some of us can still do that. You've got a lot of static in a radio. and it takes a certain fine tuning to get to one of the channels where you actually receive a consistent and clear message now we are usually full of static what is our static our desires our thoughts our life force constantly being drawn out in so many different ways and so we're unable to listen but that one radio channel is constantly flowing through and it's just our job to tune into it and this is um a practice that we can really start to do daily, to look out, to feel, to see what God might be saying. If I start to just say, oh, I think God was kind of trying to direct me in this way through this person. Oh, I feel perhaps this might be his subtle hint as to a direction in my life. And I start to tune into it, you'll be surprised how little by little you'll start to not just have to imagine these things or hope that what you're thinking is true, but you'll be able to get it just because you start to fine-tune your radio frequency to that one channel from which all these messages, all this guidance is coming to us constantly. So this is an important thing I wanted to kind of uh, bring out because we'll see this again and again. Yogananda having this vision, this guidance, this saint coming to him, that idea in his meditation coming to him, it comes to us as well. We're just not open enough to always perceive it. Okay. I. The only thing I want to bring out here in this paragraph, the following paragraph, is as now Yogananda and his father, they, re, they receive a telegram, mother in fact is ill, they're heading to Calcutta. Yogananda is just beyond grief at this moment. And he says over here from my inner tumult, an abrupt determination rose to hurl myself on the railroad tracks. They were in the. Is this what you were going to say? <laughs> I let Narayani no, say no, no, this. Please do say it. They were. On their way, they were at a railway station. A train is approaching, and this is what Yogananda is feeling at that moment. I wanted to hurl myself. I wanted to throw myself on the railroad tracks. Already bereft, I felt of my mother. I could not endure a world suddenly barren to the bone. I loved my mother as my dearest friend on earth. Now, we all have a person who is the dearest to us, but imagine an 11-year-old child whose only reality and his only foundation to his spiritual yearnings especially is his mother. And now she's going to be no more. And Yogananda here is not your yogi where he says, Okay, my mother, she's also just temporary. She was also just Maya. One less thing for me to now be attached to. No, his heart just grieved. The sensitivity of the loss was even more overwhelming to him than you and I, because this is not an attachment. This is a love that he could see. I mean, he could see their lifetimes together. He could see the eternal relationship that he shared with his mother. And um, that loss was unbearable. And so if you and I ever feel loss of loved ones, And if somebody tells you, you know, it's okay, that was just, this is just my, eh, don't listen to it. Grieve, feel bad. I mean, you don't have to let grief take over completely. But it is, it is important like Yogananda to have your heart be sensitive enough. And uh, kind of, you can say, I don't know what to what the word is over here, but soft enough. Where when something like this happens, that God's love and His Pain through that loss is also. Exp-
1: I love that line. I want to read it again. From my inner tumult, an abrupt determination arose to hurl myself on the road, on the railroad tracks. It shows Yogananda's mm, human side. As you was saying, we don't see here this self realized master but we see that human side of him. And, and I was thinking, this is such a fascinating sentence because sometimes when we hear um, sad news or on where we go through periods that we get very frustrated or disappointed or under anger or whatever that might be, sometimes the first instinct it may not be the most super conscious or uplifting one and it's very important for us whenever we are or receive those kind of news or we are in those situations don't decide right away what to do unless that you have developed that intuitive uh, knowledge but just pause for a moment before you react emotionally or too personally to that situation. I mean, later on, we, we can read that uh, Yogananda said, it took me years to accept the fact that my mother left. So we could see here that the first instinct when Yogananda hear the news, I want to die basically it's saying i just want to throw myself to the train and just be killed i mean what's the point what's the reason for me uh, of living if my dearest friend the person i like i love the most i mean as Judy was saying they had a soul's connection i mean it was very spiritually inclined so it was a big big loss, and just it shows that for many of us uh, that's one of the first instincts that we have we react to situations rather than respond to them and it's normal it's perfectly normal but let's just remind ourselves that this was a divine plan there there was a purpose and it was actually a turning point in Yogananda's um, evolution and spiritual life I mean this was the moment when he realized that he just needed to to find the real answer about life and and that was the moving force that from that moment from his mother's loss everything really started so what it uh, felt as one of the greatest tragedies in his life it turned out to be one of the greatest greatest blessings because it moved from within something that um, it was like almost the the motor that activated you know his desire his longing his his mm, search for wanting to know truth and and god and look for his mother really what was the purpose of 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 all
0: there are a few things now that we will look at one of course is in the next page yogananda immediately saying to what the young son of his landlord i mean it's just like i'm gonna say this to anybody anybody who would even remotely open themselves to listen to me i'm gonna say this and what does he say let us run away to the himalayas <laughs> So now that Yogananda has um, essentially lost his mother, he's lost his one grounding or one, you can say, link to his family. And as Narayani said, that was a very turning moment for him because that one link to his family, now having, in a sense, be freed, he could 100% fully devote himself to what it is that he truly wanted in life. And that was to renounce the world, Go to the Himalayas and just contemplate God. Now let us run away to the Himalayas. Now this is another recurring theme throughout. How many times has he tried? How many times has his attempts been thwarted? Sometimes he even made it but then it didn't turn out the way he did. But this is important here because remember when in the first page when Yogananda was being born and he's saying, past lives of being a yogi in the Himalayas came to me. And so This is basically Yogananda's past life that is driving him. This was not his dharma in this lifetime to go to the Himalayas and just have a contemplative, secluded life where he could just be with God. His life was so outward, he's going to have to be connecting with millions of people, build an organization, go to the West, bring India's treasures to a to a space where nobody has any idea what he's talking about. I mean, this is so contrasted. So often, we are led by our past desires. And even if the desire is high, I mean, I think the desire to want to run away to the Himalayas and live a life for God is a very high desire. Yet Divine Mother never allowed that to happen. So it's a nice one to contemplate in our own lives How much of my life now is driven by past desire? Even if it's a good desire, is driven by the energy that has already been generated in the past. And how much of it is truly my dharma in this life? And it'll take time to figure that out. But uh, it's an important distinction to make because just wanting to seek God in one particular form is certainly not the answer, and Yogananda was not given that opportunity in his life, and he could have taken it if he wanted, but still it was not given to him. So say in your own life what it is that um, that you feel compelled to do, but constantly ask yourself Is this just a past karma that's just continuing, or is this truly my dharma in this life? I want to then go to the next part which is, again, something perhaps some of us can relate to. This is Yogananda's brother. When he hears about that he wants to run away to the Himalayas, he taunts him. Where is your orange robe? You can't be a swami without that. Now, I just want to read this taunt and this is another thing Yogananda receives from his family quite often. Uh, We don't see it because Yogananda disguises it Um, as humorous disguises it as, you know, familiar love. But, Yogananda received a lot of opposition from his family to what he wanted to do uh, in seeking God and renouncing the world. Now, you and I don't have to need to renounce the world or single-pointedly seek God in that particular form. but we often receive a lot of opposition to our deeper yearnings to live at least a spiritual life. There's almost always somebody in our, you know, close vicinity who is in opposition to that desire, who sometimes even actively tries to block that desire or emotionally blackmails us, which is something his father and his brother interestingly do quite often. Um, So, see that even these great masters are not, you know, when they choose a life because, of course, they're very conscious. They know what they're going to kind of experience when they come. Even we know what we are going to experience when we come. We're just much more forgetful than they are. Is that we choose lives that have meaning for us and actually fuel our desires even more. In fact, in in the next line, Yogananda said, Those words by my brother thrilled me his brother had said where is your orange robe you cannot be a swami without that and Yogananda said those words suddenly thrilled him even though his brother was taunting him it awakened in Yogananda even more powerfully the desire and we will also have to work with that opposition in our lives if not from our loved ones Narayani and I in many ways are blessed that our immediate family is so supportive of what we do we couldn't do what we do without their support otherwise a part of us would kind of always have to somehow reach out, somehow convince, somehow, you know, cooperate also with that energy. Whereas now we can be free to devote our lives in this one direction, but not all of us may have that that karma. And so if you have somebody in your life who opposes your spiritual yearnings, don't be disappointed, don't be discouraged, don't feel that everyone needs to support you. Look at Yogananda's life. The one support of his life is taken away, and now everybody is against him. Yet against those odds, he rises even stronger. So use opposition even as a means to fuel more so and recognize where your true direction in life lies.
1: The most fascinating to me here is even though Yogananda had so much opposition at home, he never really argued or try to um, mm-hmm. kind of justify himself or try to convince his family or to impose to his family. And that's something that we have a tendency to do. I remember at the beginning of the path, uh, my mom had troubles to accept uh, that I was getting into this. And she was a little bit scared. And, and she tried in many ways to kind of changed my mind and, you know, wandering and emotionally also trying to manipulate a little bit. And thank God I had the strength just to keep moving forward. And my mom now loves what we are doing and appreciates it so much. And she just loves Yogananda, Swami Kriyananda, and everyone in Ananda, obviously. But it took a little bit of time for her, for her to accept fully. And I think one of the issues I had, not issues, like I I was trying to impose and convince her about the benefits and how good the spiritual path is all about. And I see this in many mothers and many parents trying to impose to their children and trying to force them somehow to to practice something that perhaps they are not ready yet. And they may, but I think everything has its own timing. And and Yogananda saw that in his brother, in his father, that they have their own destinies. They they had their own timings and their own approach to spirituality. And eventually, if it is their good karma, uh, we have to be there for them. And we have to create an environment of spirituality that doesn't need to be taught or spoken about or imposed to other people that for now they are not fully open or are a little bit skeptical. It's very sensible and sensitive from our side. Never to impose uh, how we feel about the spirituality, about our path, about the specific techniques, even though we know they are great help and the answers are there. But it may not be everyone's destiny, everyone's good karma, or everyone's mm, dharma to follow this. So let's all of us be aware that mm, whatever we face, uh, or with our family or with our friends. We don't need to justify ourselves constantly and we don't need to impose this uh, to other people. Is we need to become aware and try to create as much harmony as possible knowing that uh, the divine is going to take care of everything and this is just little karma that needs to be played out for our own growth actually sometimes it's good for us to have opposition so we can develop a strength that we think we don't have and a determination that we need to develop
0: i think that's a That's a good point to perhaps end on, just now all of us are with our families and uh, let's see how, as Narayani said, we can envelop them in our um, vibration, envelop them in the perspective that we have on life, especially in this trying period without feeling the need to impose on them and without also reacting to their opposition or perhaps sarcasm. You can see in Yogananda's brother, he constantly poked at him, constantly kind of tested him to see which way he would fall. And it's very important for us also to not give in to those triggers, to give in to those kind of moments. And now more than ever, to see and be the example for everyone around us of what it might mean to them for somebody who practices certain techniques, certain realities and what it looks like. You don't have to speak about it but the calmness in you, the joy that bubbles from you, your natural desire to serve and uplift others. I mean these are the marks of a true spiritual seeker and it is by these marks that we must convince if that's the best word I can come up with in this moment is through that example we need to transform people and open them to these greater realities but in no other way it's through magnetism and vibration and uh, let's see now for this week before we get to go deeper into the book again how we can use our magnetism and our vibration to really uplift as many people in our vicinity around us and at home as we can. Shall we take a moment just to close our eyes, straighten your spine, uplift your gaze? and Once again, with inner gratitude to Yogananda, to the Great Ones, to share their lives with us so openly, so completely, so minutely that we may draw from their lives, from their example and keep relating it back to our own lives to see how can I implement this what do I need to do to get in harmony with these higher, greater realities as the Masters do This is no longer the time to exclude others. This is the time to include them completely, wholeheartedly and envelop them in our love for God. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti